hope that you have a Bible. Hold it up if you do. Hold it up if you've got a tablet. I don't care if you hold up your phone. Uh, hold it up. I want you to hold it up all right. Now, I want you to realize what you're holding in your hand. Now, if it's a tablet or if it's a phone, it's a lot of other things. But your Bible that you hold in your hand is a special revelation from God to you, okay, and from God to all of us. In this day, we are holding a book that is one book of 66 books, but it is an incredible book. And the, what, 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 what uh, Taylor just shared about looking back on the faithfulness of God is so true to be able to do that through the Word of God because it was written over 1,500 years they took to write this and pen this from 40 different men and women of God for over three different continents in diverse circumstances and situations in three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, and over several different genres of literature. And yet when you look at the Word of God, when you hold this book, when you read this book, you're seeing a Bible that doesn't contradict itself. As Adrian Rogers says, it doesn't contradict itself ethically, theologically, doctrinally, historically, scientifically, philosophically, or morally. And so this is something that we don't worship this book, but we do worship the God of this book. And as you think about it, I hope you, you, you leverage this book, use this book, uh, uh, journal through this book. I love the journal version Bibles today where you're writing as you're reading in your Bible as God is speaking to you. And so as we sit here and we do this study for 12 months through the book of Genesis... I mean, some people can get bogged down and go, okay, why are we studying such an old book so long back, so far back? Because the Bible wasn't, none of the Bible was written to us, but it was all written for us. And if we could understand the value that it brings to our life. But then you say, okay, let's go focus on Jesus, the New Testament stuff. Let's leave that Old Testament because it's old, right? Let's just leave it in the old pantry or leave it way over there, outside, out of mind. But the reality is that 75.6% of your Bible, my Bible, is Old Testament. So the in tremendous wealth of knowledge that is there, the, the, the faithfulness of God that you see generation to generation throughout time, whenever you look at the scriptures, is there. In fact, when you understand that the Old Testament is actually so critical for understanding the New Testament, that we actually, when we dive into the Old Testament, we pull back the layers, study the history, study the different genres of literature, study the different times and epics, and you see that this is one great big story. This is not thousands of many, many stories all tied, but these actually stories all tie together. They all fit together in an incredible God story and that it works up to us today that we get to be a part of God's story and we get to lean back on this book as the book that gives us wisdom and direction for life. In fact, whenever you look in the scriptures and you find when Paul is discipling young Timothy, what does he say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14? He says, you continue... You continue, that's an imperative command, by the way. You continue in what you've learned 
uh, and have firmly believed knowing from whom you've learned it. Okay, so he's basically saying you learn something, continue in what, continue to live in, continue to live out, continue to stand on the promises, continue to rely on the faithfulness, continue in what you've learned, considering who you learned it from. Now, who is that? Who did he learn it from? Was it Paul? Was his, his great teacher? Actually, the greatest teachers that poured into him, you find it in chapter one, verse five, it was his mother and his grandmother. It was his mother and his grandmother pouring into his, into young Timothy. Now, why is, why is Eunice and Lois mentioned, but not dad? It's, it, it's it accurately, probably speculated that accurately, probably how, how, how reliable is that, right? It is most likely as it is speculated that most likely his dad has died. So most likely he's being raised by a widowed mother and a grandmother who's pouring into him because a father would be the one who would be the teacher of the law, the Torah, in, 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 in a Jewish tradition. So he's relying on his mother and his grandmother to teach him. Listen, we to this day rely on our mothers and our grandmothers to teach us. Dads, we're a part of the story and we ought to be a part of the story. But all of us come together. And I want to say this, that next Sunday when we do our parent-child dedication, that is a time when not only mothers, but it's fathers and it's, and it's grandparents and it's the church that comes together and says, Hey, we realize as you're bringing these children before God in this church, that we together are going to pour into the next generation. And so again, remember what Paul said, Paul said, continue in what you learn, considering who you learned it from. Now, what was the content of what they learned? Verse 15, and how from childhood you have uh, uh, been acquainted with the sacred writings. You were given, you were trained in, you were learned in, okay? You were educated in the sacred writings. What's he talking about? The sacred writings. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament well, it wasn't complete yet. In fact, Paul's writing the New Testament even as he's referring back to the Old Testament as the sacred writings. What do the sacred writings do for somebody which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? What? How does the Old Testament, the sacred writings of the Old Testament, how do the Old Testament tell us anything about Jesus? Jesus doesn't come to the New Testament. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. You don't have to have a degree in history to figure that one out. How is it that the Old Testament is sacred and something you need to continue in, continue to learn in, continue to build your life on, and it's pointing you and making you wise to salvation? Exactly right. I want to say today, if you read the Old Testament and you don't fall in love with Jesus even more, you need to go reread the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is pointing us to this coming Messiah whose name is Jesus the Christ. And not, not, not only is Timothy told to continue in, but the very next words, he says all scripture is inspired by God. The Old Testament is given us, breathed out by God, breathed into the hearts of those writers and those pens that were written over three different continents, given to us to this day. And then he says, and it's able to make you complete. 
And then he said also in chapter 2, he said, preach it. Get it out there. So continue in it and preach it. Continue in it in your life as you're living out your life, but also you need to declare it. So why are we going through Genesis for the year? Because we need to understand what it means to be wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. When we read the Old Testament, we ought to fall more in love with Jesus than we've ever been before. When you understand what God did, orchestrating, moving peoples and earths and and times and spaces and wars and famines and what he was doing all along the way, juxtapositioning things along the way, creating tension all along the way so that he could bring about a savior named Jesus Christ. Again, it should blow our minds if we understood the full impact of that. So take your Bibles and be finding Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, where we believe today that Genesis is written by Moses, obviously thousands of years after Genesis was lived out. But where is it that he's writing this? He's writing it in the wonderings, the 40 years of wondering. As they are preparing in 40 years to go into the promised land, they are going through seminary. They're going through character development. They weren't ready, as you know the story, they weren't ready for the promised land. There had to be some training. There had to be some character development that needed to happen in that time and space. And so that's in that space and time that many historians believe that literally Moses is writing out Genesis. He's writing out Deuteronomy. He's writing out this Old Testament history that we rely on called the Pentateuch. But as, as, you're, as you're reading through this, this character theological development, we come to a passage now where we come up on the very first war in the Bible. Okay, you've heard of World War I, World War II, you've heard of the Armageddon War. This is World War Z, okay? This is not the zombie war with Brad Pitt and all that kind of stuff. This is the first war, okay? It was the war before all other wars. It was the very first war that we see in Scripture. And it's in Genesis chapter 15. Well, now, in the beginning... Abram's not a part of the war. He's sipping tea under the oak trees in Mamre, okay? He's he's at his place in Hebron. He's living there, and he is living his life in tranquility. But what's happening in the valley is World War Z. What's happening in the valley is there's a battle that ensues. Just real quickly, if you go to the chapter, uh, the chapter 15, and excuse me, chapter 14 is where we'll be. Uh, if you go to chapter 14, you will see that there is a major war that breaks out. I'm not even going to begin to read the text for you. It'd be like reading from the Hebrew phone book, okay? It is one name after another name after another village after another king, and it's like we could just get lost in names. So let me just give you the Crypt Notes version of this, okay? The Spark Notes version of this. There are five kings, okay? There are five kings, and there are four kings that are ruling over the five kings. All of a sudden, the five kings, after 12 years of extortion, after 12 years of domination, after 12 years of paying tariffs that were unruly and ungodly, they decided, hey, there's five against four. This is my version. Uh, five against four. Let's take them over. Let's, let's flip it, okay? Let's make them subject to us. Well, so there's this war that in, breaks out in the valley near the Dead Sea. 
And when this war breaks out, you would think that five would defeat four in a heartbeat, but actually four defeat five. Three of the five go running into the hills. Their kings, their soldiers go running into the hills into hiding. And two remain and they get tarred, literally tarred. If you look in verse 10, it says that they were put into bitumen pits. Bitumen pits are literally what they would use in that time and age to be as mortar between their bricks. It was a tarry substance. And they took the tar, they put these two kings into a tar bitumen pit. And not only that, Lot is in the mix. Now, Lot's not in the pit, but Lot becomes a prisoner of war. What did I say last week about Lot and Abram? Lot, Abram is like, Lot is to Abram like a bad nickel that just keeps coming back. He's like a bad habit. It's like, I can't break this habit. He continues to, to, to be a, a pain in his side. Well, what happens here is Lot gets taken into as a POW and that alerts Abram. He quits sitting under his oak trees and he decides he's going to go to war. So what he does is he activates his 318 special forces. And he gets those 318 special forces, which I love it because God used 300 with Gideon. He uses 318 with Abram. And they go to war against the four kings who have plundered and pillaged and taken the wives and the kids and the money and the possessions of those kings as they're hiding in the hills and in tar pits. And then what happens in verse 14? Let's look there in chapter 14. Uh, Chapter 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 14. And Abram heard that the kinsman, who's his kinsman, that's Lot, and had been taken captive and, uh, and led forth his trained men, born in his house. That didn't mean he had this many kids, 318 kids. It just meant that they were in his domain, his sovereignty, if you will. So he was born to his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. That means nothing to us today, except if you know the geography of the land, the Dead Sea is in the southernmost end of the modern-day Israel, and Dan is at the northernmost end of Israel. 318 men take on four kingdoms and from the southernmost tip of, uh, of Israel to the more northernmost tip of Israel, where you can go to Dan today, the oldest archaeological dig that they've ever found is Dan. And then as far as Damascus, north of that, over a hundred miles away, they chase them. 318 men chase four kingdoms that far north. And that's a good old-fashioned schoolyard whooping is what uh, Abram did to that. He sets the people free. He gathers the spoils of war that they took from the five kingdoms. The four took it from the five. He takes Lot and he brings him back home. And he comes back home and we want to pick up in, in reading in verse 18. Because as he comes on, he comes home, the king of Sodom greets him, but also this unnamed, unknown, wasn't a part of the, the, the five kingdom coalition. But all of a sudden, a new king appears on the scene named Melchizedek. Say that with me, Melchizedek. All right, it's a mouthful. 
He shows up on the scene and he is the king of Salem. Salem is modern day Jerusalem and Melchizedek. And this is what it says in verse 18. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time flying through and looking at Melchizedek. That, again, to you and your mind are probably thinking, big deal about Mel. Who cares about Melchizedek? How does he fit into my life? How does he make my life better? If we understand the, the Old Testament, we understand that if we don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, we need to reread the Old Testament. When you look for Jesus in the Old Testament, you, you will see him in several different ways. But one of the things I want you to notice about Melchizedek here, he is identified as a king and he's identified as a priest. He is identified as a king. He's identified as a priest. That is a very unique quality. That somebody would be both a king, a king is over a sovereign land, gives rule and leadership to a land. A priest is one who mediates the relationship between God and man. So he's over them from a, from a sovereignty perspective. He's also over them from a spiritual perspective. So again, what big deal does Mel have in my life today? If you read the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus, you're going to need to read read the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you this right now, and then I'll unpack it a little bit. Jesus, or Melchizedek, is a type of Christ. It's a type. Now, how do you see Jesus in the Old Testament? You see him in three three different ways, three primary ways. One is you'll see him in a pre-incarnate way, okay? There are times that Jesus, because he's always been, okay, read John chapter 1, verse 1, read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and you'll know that Jesus has always been, and there are times that he steps in to the Old Testament, He shows up in a pre-incarnate way in a couple of different times that you would probably recall when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put into a fiery furnace. Many people believe that the fourth person in the furnace was Jesus in a pre-incarnate state. Other time is whenever Jacob, and we'll study that a little bit later on in our journey through Genesis, is wrestling with God. He's wrestling with a physical being that is God. Well, who is that? Many people believe it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. So pre-incarnates, Jesus will show up before he actually comes in the incarnation later on at his birth at Christmas time as we celebrate. The second way is through prophecies. And there are hundreds of prophecies. Hundreds of prophecies that will predict where he's born, how he will live, how he will be received, what he will do. I mean, right down to what he looks like in, in Isaiah chapter 51. And how he will be received and how he will be punished and how he will die and how he will give up his life for us. How he will rise again. The whole story of Jesus is told in the Old Testament through prophecies. But the third way and the way we see today is through types. Types are important. When you understand types, it means this. It's an element found in the Old Testament that prefigures something that's found in the New Testament. A couple examples for you is when Moses lifted up his staff. He lifts up his staff with a serpent on it, and people are healed. Well, if you go to John chapter 3, you'll find Jesus referring back to himself in this type form when he refers to, if I be lifted up, I'll draw them into me. And also, if people are lift him up, that people will be saved. John chapter 3, read it. Also, the Passover lamb is a type of Christ. When you think about the lamb, 
uh, the lamb was a sacrifice. The lamb was covering the doorpost. And everybody who lived in that house, the firstborns living in that house, they were saved. Their lives were were advanced into years because the lamb covered them. Just like Jesus is our lamb that covers us. There is a type. That's how we see Jesus in the Old Testament. Even if you go on and you want to understand Melchizedek, okay, how does this Melchizedek guy fit in? Because Jesus, just like Melchizedek, was a king and a priest, so is Melchizedek a king and a priest. Jesus is a king and a priest. Melchizedek is a king and a priest. Whenever David was praying, he prayed in Psalm Chapter 110, verse 1, he said, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, referring here to a Lord that's above David, who's the king. So again, even David's praying a prophetic prayer here, referring to there's a God, Yahweh God, is a, but there's a God still above me, and that Lord being referring to the Messiah. And what does he say? He says, sit at my right hand. Well, who's sitting at the right hand of God? Well, you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and it will tell you that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. So I'm giving you a lot of theology today. Hang with me. It's going to come in. It's going to fit together here in just a moment. But not only in Psalm 104 does it say, Lord, pray to my Lord, sit at my right hand, but you go a few verses later to verse 4, and what does it say? It says this in verse 4. It says, you are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a literal, physical, Canaanite king governing Jerusalem who comes and welcomes Abram and does this incredible exchange, and then he's gone. He's there and he's gone, but yet his type was so cast there that David picks up on Melchizedek and is praying this this prayer, tying it back to Melchizedek. But not only that, you find in the book of Hebrews that Melchizedek is mentioned 13 times. He's mentioned more in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament than he's mentioned in Genesis in the Old Testament. So there's an incredible amount of content about this Melchizedek. How is it that Melchizedek is a king and a priest? How is it that Jesus is my king and priest? When you look at Melchizedek, when people of the Old Testament looked at Melchizedek, they're getting a picture of Christ in our lives. So defining relationship realities. Real quickly, I want to give you four of them. How does Jesus fit into the being our king and our priest. How does, how does this tie together? Our king and our priest blesses us. Just like Abram was blessed in chapter 12, the blessings that go out in Genesis, here's a word study for you. Study every time the word blessing is used. You're going to find that most of the time the blessing goes out from Abraham to the next generation, to the next generation, to kings, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets blessed by Israel. There's all kinds of times. There's two times when the blessings come in. They come into Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. They come into Abraham by Melchizedek in chapter uh, 14 verse 19. What does the blessing mean? The blessing means the fullness of life. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You'll have to go back and listen to that message again. The fullness of life, the completeness of life, the sustainability of life, the beauty of life, the joy of life. That is the blessing. And what does he say in verse 19? Blessed be 
Abram. Melchizedek says to Abram, blessed be Abraham by God most high and blessed be God most high who has delivered. So here he is. Melchizedek greets him as he comes back from battle, as he comes back war-torn, bumped and bruised, lost some soldiers, I'm sure, along the way. War stories galore. But at the same time, Melchizedek looks at him and says, blessed are you, Abram. That's exactly what God does in our life. Melchizedek is a type of Christ because Jesus or Christ came to give us the blessed life. All you have to do is look at John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But what does Jesus come to do? He comes to give us life and to give it abundantly. Jesus came to give us the blessed life. Abraham was promised the blessed life, the full life, the complete life the life of substance and meaning. So Jesus, as our king priest, as our ruler sovereign, and as our priest who mediates to us to God, which brings me to number two, our king and priest points us to the most high God. If you look at verse 18 and 20, notice the phrase most high God, underscore it each time. He was, uh, he was priest of the most high Blessed him, and he said, blessed be the God, uh, uh, blessed be Abram uh, by God most high. And then he goes down to the next, for, in the next verse, and blessed be God most high. He is referring to God among all other gods. God above all other gods. There's no greater God than the God. Now you got to realize all of these kings that were fighting here, a total of nine different kingdoms, all would have their own gods. Even the Canaanites had their own gods. This is why we know this is a type of Christ because this Canaanite king is not worshiping the Canaanite gods of Baal and Asherah. He's not worshiping the gods of Salem city. He's worshiping the most high God, the highest God among all other gods. There's lots of gods in our land today, but there is only one most high God. And he is the one that he is pointing uh, uh, Abram to. He's the one who's blessing Abraham with. He is the one who's worshiping in this prayerful doxology. He's the one who's worshiping. Even, even Abram will turn around in verse 22 and will say to the king of Sodom, he said, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high possessor of heaven and earth. Why is Melchizedek the type of Christ? Because Christ connects us to the God above all all other gods. It is Christ who is the mediator. First Timothy chapter two, verse five says, there is one God, the most high God, and there is one mediator. Who is that mediator? The man, Christ Jesus. So if you want to know how Jesus is in the Old Testament, Jesus is that type in Melchizedek that he is the one who has come to bless He is the one who's come to connect us to the most high God. Number three is our king priest is worthy of our tithe. Yes, I said that. He's worthy of our tithe. How does this fit into the whole? Because what tithing is, is it's a way of saying that, you know what, God? You get priority in my life. You're going to get my first and you're going to get my best. You're going to get because you have blessed me. If you look back at verse 16, skip up to verse 16 in chapter 14. 
What, what does Abram do? When he comes back from battle, he does what every other king in that land does. You take the spoils of war and that's how you pay your army. You get this gold, you get this woman, you get this possessions, you get these things. That's how you pay your soldiers. And he brought back all the possessions and also brought back all the kinsmen. He brought back all the prisoners of war and Lot and with his possessions, he brought it all back. Now what is Lot? Abram could be wealthy. He could be incredibly wealthy on top of already being wealthy. And it's kind of like some people today. It's like, how much wealth do you need before you have enough? But what Abram does is a beautiful thing. He does something that in this day and age, we have a hard time doing. Go down to verse 20. In this doxology of prayer, and he blessed him, and he said this, and Melchizedek says this, and he blessed be the God, the Most High, and delivered you, uh, your enemies into your hand. And notice the very next phrase. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gave to the king of, of, of Melchizedek? Why did he do that? He did it because he wanted to pay loyalty to him. He was living in the Canaanite land. It was the right thing to do. It was just the proper right thing to do. So here I want you to say, yeah, let me give you two reasons people have a hard time. Christians have a hard time tithing. The, the number two reason, I'm going to give you the number one in a moment. The number two reason is because they'll say this. Oh, it's an Old Testament thing and we live in the New Testament. Listen. It's not even a law thing. The law of tithing doesn't happen until Moses starts writing about it in Deuteronomy, okay? In Leviticus. That didn't happen until they're well on their journey into the wilderness and they're well on their journey on to the promised land. This tithe happens long before that. But notice this, it's a willful tithe. They willingly stepped up. And they tithe. So Christ, Melchizedek is a type of Christ because Christ affirms tithing even in the New Testament. If you look in Matthew 23, 23, in a discourse between the Pharisees, Jesus said it. It's hidden there. You should tithe. Yes. It's a part of it. But let me tell you the number one reason people don't tithe. People don't tithe. is because they have a hard time giving 10% is too much to give to a God who gave 100%. And you think about that. What out of balance is that? I have a hard time giving 10% to a God who gave me 100%. Basically, the problem is, is we have a hard time with making Jesus our most high God. We have so many other gods before Jesus. Tithing is a way of setting ourselves, our hearts in the right place, our priorities in the right place. But not only that, number four is Jesus as our king, priest, Melchizedek. You see it in Melchizedek. He is our offer of life. He offers his life to us. If you look at verse 18, I skipped over this because I wanted to save it to the end. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Bread and wine. Maybe customary, but because I believe that this is a special revelation of God and because I believe that God knew what he was writing from the day one to the day end of the book, 
because I believe it's one great big story all tied together, because I believe that this is not an, uh, an allegory, but this is actually a type of Christ, that what, what, what Melchizedek does here may have been customary, but it was also a beautiful type picture of Jesus giving his body and his blood for us. His body and his blood for us. He brought bread and wine out. So Melchizedek is a type of Christ because Christ is our bread and wine. He is our life. He is the one who paid it all so that we could be in a relationship with Christ. If you have your your communion sets with you today, if you'll just start to open them. There's two layers of one with a with a wafer and one with um, juice. And let me say this as you prepare. This is a meal. This is a observance of those who are in a relationship with Jesus. This doesn't make you in a relationship. This doesn't bridge you to a relationship with Jesus. Jesus did that. And Jesus is the one who mediates us to the most high God. Thank God for Jesus. But what it is, is it is a reminder to me constantly that it was the body of Christ, the bread, and it was the blood of Christ, the wine, that is a picture of my relationship with him, of the forgiveness of my sins, the reconciliation that I have with God. And again, I told you a type is something that's referred in the Old Testament. We can't just make everything in the Old Testament and make it a type in the New Testament. There is a clear reference in the New Testament to what has been spoken in the Old Testament. Well, if you look in Paul's writings, these two elements are mentioned. First of all, it is the bread. And in verse 23, it says, For as often as you receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Melchizedek brings the bread and the wine to Abraham, It is a type, it is a picture of Jesus Christ coming and bringing himself to us. Before we take this bread, would you take a moment in your own heart and mind and just thank God for sending Jesus. For sending him in the flesh. For walking, talking, teaching, healing for how he brings life with his life that his life is the bread of life Father God we bow before you we recognize you as our bread our sustaining sustenance of life our our staple of everyday living is bread. You are the staple that keeps our life together. We worship you, Jesus, 
And we thank you for your life lived well, lived sacrificially so that we could live eternally. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And they ain't. In the same way also he took the cup. And after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. Old Testament is the old covenant. New Testament is the new covenant. In my blood, do this command, imperative command. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Both times he calls us to remember. What did Taylor talk about? Remembering his faithfulness. What are we reading through Genesis? We're remembering his faithfulness. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, we thank you for your blood. Father, it is gruesome. It is rated R. It is, it is inhumane. It is not right. It is not just what you went through. In a world that yells and screams about injustices, Lord, may we cry from our heart about the injustice of your crucifixion. The injustice of you dying for me when I should die for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you give me life. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood gives me life. We take this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And they drink. For 4,000 years, from the time of Abram, even back to Adam, they were looking, looking forward to a coming Savior of the world. We're 2,000 years removed, half that time, and we're looking back. All of it, whether you're looking forward or you're looking back, points to Jesus. In this space right now, we're going to give you some space. Whether you stand and sing or you sit and pray and you listen to what God's saying to you, I pray in your heart you will hear from God and you will respond appropriately. If you have questions, come see me. Come see one of our pastors. If you want to pray to receive Christ, come talk to me. I would love to talk with you about that, what it means to, to be in the family of faith of Jesus Christ and experience that forgiveness. This is your space and your time.